This is David Hoffeld, author of The Science of Selling, proven strategies to make your pitch, influence decisions, and close the deal. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now, and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please send me a tweet and tell me where in the world you are listening from. My Twitter handle is at marketingbook. I love to hear from the listeners, and they are, in fact, all over the world. Today, we're joined by David Hoffeld, and we're going to talk about his new book, The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. David Hoffeld is the CEO and Chief Sales Trainer at Hoffeld Group, a research-based sales and consulting firm. He's pioneered a sales approach based on research in neuroscience, social psychology, and behavioral economics that's been proven to radically increase sales. And he's trained and coached salespeople from small and medium businesses to Fortune 500 companies. David is a sales and leadership contributor to Fast Company, and has been featured in Fortune, U.S. News and World Report, The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, CBS Radio, Fox News Radio, and now finally, The Marketing Book Podcast. And for a big part of his uh, early life, his goal was to be a professional baseball player. David, congratulations on the science of selling and welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I should say, uh, now this is a little inside baseball, no pun intended. Um, when I am able to be contacted by an author before their book is published, and I can get something to read, like a, a manuscript or a galley or something like that, um, I read it and I interview them beforehand so that I can have the episode published as close to their uh, launch week uh, as possible. And more and more authors and publishers are starting to find out about this, Um and a lot of them don't. And I just want to say that you win the award for contacting me the earliest, uh, earlier than any other author. I think it was almost, I don't know, six to 12 months ago, uh, you contacted me and I thought, holy cow, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so here we are. And uh, what I wanted to do was just start with uh, one brief excerpt from uh, the book, and then we'll go from there. Okay. How would you feel... If you found out that you were regularly using sales strategies and tactics that actually clash with how human beings are wired to be influenced, unfortunately, you probably are. It is not your fault. Most popular selling strategies have been disproven by science. In fact, in this book, you will see that some of the most commonly taught sales ideas on topics such as prospecting, asking questions, presenting value, creating urgency, justifying costs, negotiating, and closing, all conflict with science. This is a serious concern because science discloses reality. When salespeople sell against science, they are inadvertently selling in ways that decrease their effectiveness. So, David... 
To get started, tell the story of your argument years ago with your colleague who you call Bill, probably not his real name, and how it led to this book. And this must have been 15 years ago. Yeah, this is many years ago when I was working with a colleague. We were trying to put together some basic sales training for the staff that I was managing. And we had an argument about a rapport-building strategy. Actually, I do cover the strategy in the book, uh, Mirroring. And I had said that mirroring a prospect's verbal and nonverbal behaviors was a productive way of building rapport. And to my surprise, Bill said, I disagree. I don't think we should put it in the training. And I was shocked. I said, no, Bill, you don't understand. I've used this. It works. Bill looked at me and he said, listen, David, I've tried to use it. It doesn't work. And he was a good salesperson, right? He was a very good salesperson. And that's what I went to next. I said, listen, I've been successful here and here and won these awards. And he threw the uh, same evidence right back at me and said, listen, I've tried it. I've been successful. It doesn't work. And we just went back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I stopped, both because I didn't want to escalate the argument and mostly, though, because I wasn't sure how to win the argument. I realized we were both appealing to the same form of evidence, which was our own experience. It was anecdotal evidence. And we really couldn't prove that either one of us was right. And so we just went to the standstill. And that kind of made me pause because I had to be honest. Uh, later on, I said, am I really right? I mean, am I really teaching this strategy or others that are not helping people? And so for me, at first, it was a matter of integrity. I wanted to know that what I was doing that was really serving my buyers, my prospects, and what I was teaching other salespeople to do that, that worked for me, that it was helping them sell, wasn't getting in the way. And so that began a long search. And to make a long story very short, I stumbled on an academic journal in social psychology, and I read it. And I was just amazed at something in, in the journal that I said, well, I can use this when I sell. And so I started to do so and got results. And so I started to research more and more. And social psychology is literally defined as the scientific study of how human beings are influenced in a social setting. Very relevant for selling. And so as I began to read more and more academic journals, which is an odd hobby that I developed, but I began to throw myself into this and I applied it into the world of selling just to see if I can enhance sales results and effectiveness. And it did. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that a lot of what in the sales community we talk about is wrong in that it conflicts with how our brains are wired to be influenced and wired to make buying decisions. And so we inadvertently get in the way of the sale, as you mentioned in the excerpt you read from the book. And that caused me a lot of concern. And so as I, the more I got into this science, the more relevance I saw. And the more it was just hidden away in these academic journals. No one had ever told me as a sales professional about this science. Uh, had I not stumbled on that academic journal, I wouldn't have known it even existed and not let alone how relevant it was for what I do every single day. And the more I got into it, the more passionate I got about it, and the more results we started to achieve. And then in 2009, I took the plunge and started my own firm, focusing specifically on taking this science out of the laboratories and academic journals and applying it to selling. And uh, along that journey, uh, Harvard came into play. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an odd twist to the story. Um, I started, as I started applying this early on, I started getting such good results and I kept doing it more and more. And it became literally my obsession, meaning when I wasn't working or spending time with family, this is what I was doing. As I mentioned, it was an odd hobby. I literally 
spent thousands of hours reading academic journals and trying to connect the dots and doing experimentation. And I started getting such good results, and I started doing some consulting uh, early on and got such astounding results that it almost seemed too good to be true. And usually when something seems too good to be true, it is. And so I took a step back, uh, and I said, you know, I want to really get some feedback on this. Am I on to something, or what's going on here? Because I really didn't have anyone who had ever done this, at least not that I knew of, who had taken uh, this science out of academia and applied it in the world of selling the way I was. And so I went to Harvard Business School, and I met with some of the professors, and I took the only class they had on selling and talked to students. And it was during one of the conversations with one of the professors after our class one day that it hit me, that this is not just a better way to sell or a way to boost sales results or, or, or position yourself more effectively in the marketplace, that this can literally transform the idea of selling. It gives us an objective basis to start with, meaning not how should we sell, but how do people make buying decisions? And because science has disclosed that, that tells me now how do I respond to that? So we start with the buyer, not the seller. We don't look for best practices, though there's value in that, but our foundation is how does the brain make a buying decision? How is the brain wired to be influenced? And now that dictates how I should sell. And it's a radical starting place but it is scientifically proven to increase sales effectiveness because it's basing everything on how our brains work. And it's a very exciting, a very exciting time for sales and very exciting when you see this work right in front of you. It's, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And there's a big parallel um, here that I saw that may not have been apparent to you, but um, in, mar in the marketing world, uh, you know, everything has changed or so much has changed, you know, in part because of technology and, and the Internet. But it's mainly because the way people buy mm -hmm. has changed. Yes. And as you talk about in the book, you, you discuss how most selling is all about the seller and the sales mm -hmm. process, whereas uh, the really successful marketing now is, um, for better or worse, really f you're, they're forced to focus on the buyer and how they want to buy because yes. they're in control. So there was a there was a great uh, parallel there, and I also have to say, you know, your enthusiasm comes through in the book as well, and uh, I enjoyed reading it. And there was a a certain similarity to reading a couple of other <laughs> books that, that came to mind, um, and it was this uh, "Good to Great," which came out years ago. Mm. Um, they analyzed all these companies, and it was based on data. In other words, yeah. they only looked at privately held companies and they only looked at certain things and they went through thousands and thousands till they found a few to determine what it was that what are those things they did that made them suddenly take off. And I yeah. yours is based on on science and data, not much on not really hunch. Um and although a lot of salespeople have good hunches, but it this uh, in part serves to affirm it. And there were a couple other books from the people at CEB um, mm. Challenger Sale mm -hmm. and Challenger Customer. And as I was reading those books, one a while ago and Challenger Customer just last year, and I had the one of the authors on the show here, um, I told him how uh, his book frustrated me because it was presenting things that I just thought, well, no, wait a minute. Now, how do you know that? And then they would say, and this is based on a thousand-person study. <laughs> it was all based on research. Yeah, And I just... I. I couldn't argue with it. So I, there was a similar uh, thing about your book that was uh, very similar. But let me ask you a couple of the big, uh, couple of the other big questions. And one of them, 
uh, brought to mind uh, the dot-com boom, when all mm. these uh, hotshot Internet companies were saying, you know, bricks and mortar, they're going away. There's not going to be the future of retail. It's not going to be at a, at a business place. And occasionally I'll hear some people, maybe some uh, wishful marketers, talking about, you know, sales. We're, we're going to make sales uh, irrelevant. Mm. Uh, and that, that really grinds my gear because I think it's an ignorant statement. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could help me out and explain why salespeople still matter and, and why they're always going to matter. Absolutely. Well, in researching for the book, uh, again, this was about a 10-year, which is a ridiculous time, by the way, to, for, for someone to spend researching a book. Well, but, I appreciate uh, you doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I told someone recently, had I known how, how long and tedious it was going to be, I may not have done it. But I do have a lot of passion for it, so I enjoyed it. But it, it was a lot of hard work. But to answer your question, you're exactly right. And this idea that salespeople will be obsolete is nothing new. In fact, we have an article on our website uh, when we talk about this throughout history, uh, throughout the 20th century, with every new innovation, uh, things like, you know, when, when, um, when railroads changed and the telephone came into existence. And through every innovation, the promise has always been, and now we won't need salespeople. But that has never come to fruition. And the reason is, is because information alone will not persuade someone to act. If that was all it took, we would simply send out brochures. We literally wouldn't have salespeople. Many have tried to to not utilize them. No one has succeeded yet because it's, it's interpersonal relationships still matter. Now, granted, someone can get through part of the buying process without talking to a salesperson. But unless you're selling a very low-risk, low-cost item, they still want to talk to a live person. And those interpersonal relationships matter a lot because what a salesperson does is influence. Essentially, if you deconstruct any of the activities they do that are effective, they're trying to influence another person in positive and ethical ways. And what is influence? It's guiding other people and taking an idea seriously and being willing to act on it. So if I'm making a big purchase, I want to talk to someone. I have questions I want to have answered. I want to know who's behind this. And so that interpersonal relationship, it matters because it's part of the human condition. It'll never go away. That's what the human brain wants. That was one of my takeaways from the book. That's not going to change. No, not at all. No, it's, it's wired into who we are. Now, the question is now, salespeople, I would contend, matter now more than ever. Here's why. Because the buying, as you mentioned, the buying, the way people buy has changed. Technology has changed the game. We're entering, salespeople are entering the sale later than ever before. And not only that, but when I first got started in sales, I could hide my competitors. For the most part, people didn't always know who they were. Now, every time a salesperson enters a selling situation, it's hyper-competitive. The prospect has done the research. They often know who the main competitors are. They've talked to them, looked at their website. So now salespeople matter more than ever because though buyers can get through a lot of the buying process without them, they stop. And around the 60% mark, a lot of the data shows. And then they need to talk to a salesperson. And what I've seen is this. It's not the best product or service that wins. It's often the best salesperson because what they believe about the product or service from that point on in the buying process is shaped heavily by how the salesperson interacts with them. And so we want to focus on how do we now interact because technology hasn't negated salespeople. If anything, it's made them more important than ever before. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, speaking of performance, 
why do salespeople underperform? And uh, we've talked about CEB, we've talked about HBR. Explain why salespeople underperform. The, the overarching reason is this. We often, because of how sales has been lack of scientific study into it, we don't always base, we, in fact, we rarely do base how we sell on how our buyers' brains make buying decisions. And so the big problem is we often conflict with that, meaning we behave in ways that drive down performance. There's one example of this I'll share with you that I talk about in the book, which is a study that was published in the Harvard Business Review couple of years ago, and it should cause everyone in sales to cringe because what the research found, they studied 800 salespeople on sales calls, and they found that 63% of the salespeople in the study regularly behaved in ways that drove down the likelihood of the sale. Only 37% were consistently effective, and that's representative of numerous other research studies that have found the same thing. So real quickly, what does that mean? What makes something, what makes a behavior hinder the likelihood of the sale? The short answer is when it conflicts with how the brain is wired to make a buying decision, the way the, way, the way the brain is wired to be influenced. When we obstruct that, when we conflict with that, we always pay a price. And the, the opposite is true as well. When we align how, our, how we sell with how our buyers' brains are wired to make a buying decision, we instantly become more effective and we make the buying process more enjoyable for them because all of us want to be sold to in that way. And the problems that we often have with salespeople when we're consumers is that they obstruct the sale. They do things that frustrate you. They don't handle things the way you'd want them to. What is going on there? We're getting in the way of the sale because we're literally obstructing how our brains are wired to be influenced. Mm -hmm. it, it, they're, they're, they're actually doing harm that once they know, they, they'll, I would think they, most of them, you know, salespeople, or, or would, would want to change. Also, you mentioned um, that there was a CEB study that talked about 53% of customer loyalty is tied to the seller's behavior. Can you explain more about that? Absolutely. Our brains are, do, are fascinating things, but there's certain rules that our brains follow when making choices. And we've developed these to be able to make rapid choices. If our brains didn't follow these rules or behavioral scientists and behavioral economics, we refer to them as heuristics. So these are the rules that our brains use when forming choices. And these rules, one of them is that we link the seller with the company. Meaning that when you are talking to a salesperson, you're judging that company by the salesperson. And all of us have done this, where we have interacted with the salesperson, and because of how they acted or a customer service rep, we say, I'm not going to do business with that organization anymore. So we punish the organization because of the salesperson. And the opposite is true. We've had great experiences with a salesperson or a customer service rep, and we say our loyalty to the company goes up. So we link the two together. So how people sell, how they interact with potential customers and customers matters a great deal. This is mission critical. And so we need to make sure we're analyzing how we're behaving and not leaving it up to chance or opinions, but really looking at the data and saying, okay, how should we now sell? Mm -hmm. And uh, just for the marketers uh, that are listening, there was one line where you explained uh, uh, and I quote, the more that sales messaging is aligned with the mental steps the brain goes through when creating a buying decision, the more effective 
it will be. So I found uh, lots of helpful things in the book just from a marketing content standpoint. But you're uh, in the sales training industry. Um, I know some sales trainers are listening to the show, some friends of mine. How has modern sales training not adapted to the this new selling climate? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things is, and we talk about why in the book this is, but the, the reality is most sales training today is based on what other people in sales are doing. So we innovate by looking in the mirror. So we say, what are the best of us doing? And then we say, let's go and do likewise. There's some validity to looking at best practices. But what matters far more is who our selling practices should always be focused on, which is the buyers. And so how do we focus on the buyers? This science gives us a clue literally into our buyers' minds. And without it, we're just guessing. And this is why all sales training philosophies vary in some ways. We brag about that. We say, I'm different than this company or my book's different than that book, right? But because there's so anecdotal anecdotal, uh, basis for much of sales training, we're missing the boat and oftentimes we're wrong. The way we're, things we're recommending conflict with this science. And so I recommend that what we do is we say, here's the science. This is our objective reality. This is where we start. And we go with wherever the science says. And I think sales, as we get more and more into this and start to catch up with marketing, to your point earlier, will become far more effective. And it changes the game because now the conversation changes from uh, what do you want to do? You know, who, who should we copy to how does the brain make a buying decision? And now we respond to that. So the conversations radically shift. They become far more effective and allows us to innovate and create really powerful uh, buyer-centric strategies with ease because we have that scientific basis that Mm -hmm. undergirds the whole process. Yeah, and I would say, my opinion, uh, it's it's not like uh, all sales approaches are wrong because Mm -hmm. there were a number of things in your book that affirmed why certain things work really well. So it's not, you know... You're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it was interesting for me to understand that's why it works. So, um, and and you also mentioned the way most salespeople are taught is uh, to sell is grounded in selling, not buying, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Hopefully, in our remaining time here, I was could could you talk about how to sell the way people buy and uh, in, in hopes that we could walk through what you call the six whys, which for me were the cornerstone of the book. Absolutely, yeah. What we found early on in the research in trying to apply the science was that there are certain commitments that must occur or else the buying decision will not. So there were certain commitments that mattered more than others. So it wasn't just continuing the sale or basic commitments, which we as a sales profession, we have understanding of. But there were certain commitments that the brain has to make. And there's a lot of research that kind of led me to the clue that commitments matter from behavioral science. In fact, decades of it, that small commitments naturally lead to larger ones that are consistent with the small commitment. So we started testing that out. What has to happen for our brains to say yes to a product or service. And we found that there were six commitments that have to be made. If one of these is not made, the buying process breaks down and it results in an objection. And the I should implicate- add, David, that I, as someone who, uh, I'm, I'm not a, I guess I'm not a salesman, but I do sales in terms of trying to sell my company. Mm-hmm. I have seen uh, sales break down in every one of these. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so, and having done it wrong, uh, I can I can affirm every one of these. <laughs> Go yeah, ahead. same here. And that was to your point earlier. Oftentimes, I know when I got started in this science as well, I realized that a lot of what I had done was right. And it gave me more of a deeper, richer understanding of how to build on that. But I also realized that some of what I was doing was wrong. And one of the things I was doing wrong was I had always been taught that closing is something that happens at the end of the sale. And oh, wait a minute. The, I thought you should always be closing. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Reference yeah, to Glenn and, Gary, and Glenn Ross. To, yeah. Now we money the waters even more because they're, yeah. But what the research shows is that there are certain commitments. So we look at closing. The final act is the final commitment in a positive buying decision that's intertwined and even dependent on this series of small strategic commitments that have already happened throughout the sale. And so commitments are the building blocks of the sale. So to answer your question about the six whys, those are the six commitments. That's how we use the term to make it very simple, uh, that that every sales process should be focused on getting. In fact, that's how we can look at a sales process and we can say, okay, here's where the weaknesses are. Here's what the objections are you're hearing without even listening to a sales call, but just by looking at the structure of the process. Because anytime one of those whys are not addressed, one of those core commitments, the sale breaks down. And so how, which should our sales processes, how do we judge if they're effective or not without trial and error, which is very expensive? We compare this objective standard now uh, of the six whys, and we say, are we guiding our buyers through this progression of consent, naturally advancing the sale by getting these strategic commitments, each of which we talk about in the book, begin with the word why, hence the, the six whys. Mm-hmm. And, and, and very first, important. The first one is why change? And this is probably my favorite one. Why yeah. change? Yeah, that is that is the foundation. And this is the one that most of us struggle with the most, I know I do, and that is because all of us have lost more business to nothing than to someone. Absolutely. That is my biggest competitor, the status quo. Exactly, the status quo. We talk about that, the status quo bias, that all of us, our brains have a bias to do nothing. We view doing nothing as much less risk than doing something. We don't want to make a wrong decision. So how do I break through this, this status quo bias, because if I don't answer this why, everything else I do is irrelevant. I mean, trying, trying to give someone a solution for a problem they don't think they have or don't care about, well, makes you irrelevant. So how do we do that? And we looked at that. How do we do that? And one of the things we found from the research is focusing on problems, which isn't a new idea in selling, but really helping people understand what's going on. So identify a problem, understand the scope of it, the cause, the pain that it's that it's that it's causing, the consequences of inaction. And we can also break through this status quo bias with insights, by provocative insights that get people to to think about an issue that they may have, but they're not aware of it yeah. or haven't taken it seriously. But it, yeah, it's a foundation of selling, understanding why should I change? Because until you get that one, really nothing else matters. Yeah, and you talk about why why do most salespeople not find problems? Because they're not looking for them. <laughs> that's a that's a key point. What we saw too in analyzing salespeople is that oftentimes the problem that our customers, potential customers come with, we say, okay, that's what you want to deal with. And then we we try to figure out a solution. But usually, you know, in the past problem solving was an important part of selling, and it still is. But now we have to evolve. We have to be problem finders, Mm -hmm. not just problem solvers. And so we have to think differently about 
even whenever our buyers tell us the problem is, is that really the full scope of the problem? Do Never. they understand it? <laughs> exactly. Rarely does that happen. When it call, we got to start thinking differently, and we're not problem solvers. We're problem finders, and that mm-hmm. gives us an advantage because the research shows if I can find a problem, you're very likely to let me solve it. So I can negate a lot of my competitors. I can jump into the buying process far earlier if I find the problem as opposed to waiting for you to identify it and then bring it to me when you're, you're also engaging all my competitors. So we can provide a lot more value in the sales process, which is also what buyers are demanding. They want value throughout every stage of the process, not just at the end of the sale when they get your product or service. They want it throughout every stage. You have to provide value or oftentimes the sales call will stop. Yep, yep. And it reminds me of the, the notion I hear about in sales training where they say uh, they teach psychiatrists the first problem the patient brings you is never the real problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, one of the other parts about why change that just really resonated with me is you explained why you have to make those problems hurt. Absolutely. Yeah. If all of us have problems, I have problems, Douglas, you have problems, our listeners, we all have problems. And oftentimes we do nothing about them. We've had these problems for years and we just, we live with it. Yeah. I found that um, if I just ignore medical problems, they go away, David. (laughs) We'll we'll talk after. Okay. We'll, We'll talk after. Uh, but that's an important point. We often do that. Our brains, again, it's, it's hard for us to do something. It's much easier to do nothing. So our natural tendency for all of us is to ignore. And so when do we start to address problems? When they hurt, when they cause pain. So when we understand the ramifications of problems by the consequences of doing nothing, that doing nothing is far more painful than doing something. And so we as a sales, sales professionals, we have to really work at this and try to help people understand the implications of the problems. And often there's a lot of ways we can do that, but it's a key focus. We need to not just identify problems, we got to make them hurt because the more pain that a problem that a person attributes to a problem, the f- they're far more likely now to do something about it versus ignore it or push it off to later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so let's uh, we'll, we'll go along more quickly now that we spent most of the time on the, my favorite, which is why change. But number two is why now? And can you? Um, there was another insight in the book where you explained that the longer somebody takes to make a decision. Uh, the more likely they're not going to make any decision. Absolutely. Yeah, we call it sales time, which is exactly what you just described. The longer it takes for a buying decision to occur, the less likely it is that it will. And we all, as as sales and marketing professionals, know this. We always want to speed up sales cycles and buying cycles. How do we do that? Uh, Understanding these certain commitments and guiding people through that does this. In fact, there's a lot of things from science that allow us to create urgency and speed up sales cycles by simply aligning how we sell with how people buy. It makes the decision easier, less risky. We perceive it differently when it's done in a certain way, the science-based way of selling. Mm -hmm. So it's very buyer-centric, and that was one of the things that surprised me early on. I thought that applying this science would improve sales results, and it did. But one thing I hadn't thought of that I was really pleasantly surprised by was how much buyers enjoyed buying in this way. People like buying this way because it's aligned with how their brains are wired to make decisions. It makes the decision-making process easier for them, and it allows them to make more confident and have more confident decisions and have greater loyalty to those decisions, which is beneficial for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about major decisions, major purchases I've made um, and uh, how 
when I was being sold something, uh, more of these elements were there, whether the seller had something to do with it or not. Um, the next one is number three is why your industry solution. And again, very interesting because I think a lot of people don't understand what their real competition is. Absolutely right. And this we found was the silent killer of a lot of sales. It's a silent sales assassin. Oh, that's right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. And because people don't see it coming. And, uh, it was important because oftentimes people, you'll identify that they need to change, they need to move forward now, but they'll often look for ways outside of your industry. So buyers are not just considering you and other providers like you, they're considering all options. And so often we're not aware of that. And so we have to guide buyers in understanding why they need someone, a professional, someone from our industry to help them solve the problem and making a business case for that. Because if you don't, if they have another option outside of your industry, and often they do, um, they'll pursue it. Mm-hmm. If, so, so you want to address that head on in the sales process. An example would be, I, I, I'm assuming part of your business is uh, sales training. So mm-hmm. what would be an example of a company that uh, thinks, well, I don't need what uh, Hoffeld offers. I can do what would be an alternative, they might think. Sure. It's a sad thought to think about, but I'll try for j- just a It's a, a mistaken notion, yeah. yes. <laughs> but I mean, like they might think, oh, well, um, we're going to watch, uh, we're going to send people to seminars once a year and get them pumped up, or we're going to have them just read a bunch of books. Exactly. Well, yeah, you just named it. Let's just, let's just go and, and read a book, or we'll just, um, we'll, we'll put uh, someone from our organization in charge of, you know, figuring this thing out, and then they'll train the people. So again, that's outside of the industry. So at that point, in this case, I'm not competing with another training provider. I'm competing with the company buying books, which is a far less cost than I would be, or having someone from within the organization learn, read some books or figure this thing out called selling and then just train people internally. So why shouldn't they do that? I need to address that and help them understand. And the way we convey it in the book and, and through our training is in very non-confrontational ways that really people appreciate because you're helping them make this decision. Everyone wants to make wise decisions. We don't want to make decisions that we're not going to have confidence in or have very high risk. And so you're helping them do that. You're helping them think through all these options, which is providing a lot of value in their eyes. So you're really building, again, providing value throughout every stage of the sales process, which mm-hmm. is so important. Okay, so let's say, okay, we got it. We got to have sales training or we got to have agency services or whatever, whatever the listener sells. Um, then at that point, the question is why you and your company? Absolutely. And we talk about that in the book. As I mentioned earlier, people look at the salesperson, buyers look at the salesperson, and they judge the company by the salesperson. So how do we position ourselves? What can we do? There's some very practical things uh, you can do to convey the value and build the trust. And we all know in sales, trust matters a great deal. How do you build it? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And so giving some very practical science-backed ways of building trust that we can easily put into practice and really help people see how great our companies are and how important our products and services are by simply how we represent them. So focusing on that because perception is created by presentation. And so the way I present something heavily shapes how it will be perceived and whether or not someone will act on it or not. So me as a salesperson, I matter. The way I convey, the way I communicate, it all matters. So why do you do what you do? That's what we always ask salespeople. Why do it your way versus another way? Why that behavior versus this one? Mm -hmm. And look at what's the basis for it. Because once you understand all the research in this area, 
It tells you exactly what to do, exactly how to go. And so I believe, boy, there's never been a more exciting time to be in sales or marketing because of this explosion of scientific research. Yeah, and, and even on the part on why you and your company, you've got a big part of it is broken down into demonstrate expertise and communicate mm-hmm. confidence. Well, to demonstrate expertise, I mean, you could tear that out and hand it to a marketer. That, <laughs> that was, exactly. That's a big part of the content, the content marketing and all that uh, type of thing. Um, and then the, the the fifth one is you talk about the the question has to be answered why your product or service and in that there's like two major pieces one of them is cost leadership and the other one's differentiation David which one is not usually a good idea Yeah cost leadership is something you want to avoid and for most people that sell it's something that's used against them so you're not the cost leader in the marketplace there are cheaper providers but you there say there always will be it seems like it's a race to the bottom anyway Exactly. Some people, that they choose that competitive advantage. They say, I want to be the cost leader. It's usually very short-lived. It's problematic for a variety of reasons. Where most of us live is differentiation. So how do I differentiate? What I tell people and what we put in the book real quickly is we look for what's called distinct value. So if I'm going against the competitor, how do I formulate my competitive advantage? So I look for distinct value, which is two things. Number one, how am I different than that competitor? What am, how am I different than them? And second, does my buyer care? If I'm different, but they don't care, well, then don't, who cares? But if I'm different and they do care, then I want to leverage that in my favor. So I look for distinct value. And so competitive advantage isn't this static thing that we create, you know, document it and move on with their lives. It's dynamic. Every time I'm entering a selling situation, I'm looking for distinct value. Where can I provide value that the other providers they're considering cannot? I identify that. Dude, does it matter to them? Or how can I make it matter to them by calling attention to it and positioning it in the right way? And then I leverage that within the sale. That allows me, I don't have to beat up my competitors. I I can allow my customers to do that. I can guide them in realizing that they want a service, a a product or a service that, that has features or benefits that only I offer, and they wouldn't even consider an option that didn't include that feature or that benefit. And so it allows me to negate my competitor preemptively without ever having to beat them up. I just let my customers do it. Yeah, yeah. And you show exactly how to ask the, the questions that lead them yeah. to that conclusion. But the, one of the things, again, back to marketing, the, on the differentiation, the, like you said, the distinct value must matter to the buyers. Mm-hmm. And I see so many companies trying to promote some aspect that the buyer does not care about yes. in business since 1945. Is that all you have? <laughs> they don't care. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we work with companies. That's the one thing. We always hurt their feelings by, you know, asking them, you know, tell me about your company. And then after they do, they're all proud. And we say, here's the reality. No one cares. No one cares at all. I don't care about your company. Your customers don't care about your company. But here's what they do care about. They care about what matters to them. I care about the problems that your company could help me solve. So the more you can make your company, your product, your service about me, the more I care. The more it's about you and these just cold value propositions that I see are irrelevant, the less I care. So connect the dots. So if you're talking about how you've been around since 1945, if someone, if that matters to someone, connect the dots. You know, you mentioned a little while ago, Douglas, that you wanted the company that had, that was trustworthy, that did what they said they were going to do. Does the fact that we've been around since 1945 give you that peace of mind that we're that kind of company? Oh, yeah, it does. So connect the dots. And we show you how to do that in the book. But it's important. Don't just talk about your company. Make it about the person. Because the more it's about the person you're talking to, 
the more they'll care about your company. No one cares about you. No one cares about your company. And the sooner we em- embrace that sad fact, uh, the better we are and the more we're able to meet our potential customers' needs. Mm-hmm. And they all listen to the same radio channel, WIFM, What's In It For Me. Exactly. Um, and anyway, the last one, why spend the money? Uh, just it, it was so, uh, after reading it, it was so obvious that it, it hurt. Um, but can you explain the dominant buying motives? Those were two of my favorite things that you, you really tackled, J- just two of them. Absolutely. So dominant buying motives are common terms that we're probably all familiar with, desire for gain and fear of loss. And so what Why Spend the Money does is it guides people in saying, okay, I need to change. I need to do it now. Uh, your industry solution, I want you and your company. I want your product or service. But there's something else. I, I have a limited amount of funds here, right? We have the budget for only one thing. And so I can buy your product or service, or I can buy something else different entirely, right? So I can buy your software program, or I can uh, fix our machinery that's hindering our production. So I'm now I'm dealing with why should they spend the money on me, on my product or service, versus something else different entirely? How do we address that? We focus them on desire for gain and fear of loss. And we often talk about these in sales, we're very good at desire for gain. We're often very poor at fear of loss. So the research shows that fear of loss is twice as powerful as desire for gain. But often we say it matters, but we don't know what to do about it. So how do we position ourselves? How do we get them to understand what they'll lose if they don't move forward and clearly connect the dots? And so that's what why spend the money is focused on. It's such an important piece because often sales are lost here. People push off the sale because they want to buy something else that's not a competitor or a direct competitor of you, and then we lose the sale. Bad things happen, priorities shift, and it never comes back to fruition. So addressing why spend the money, why should you invest your money, your budget on this versus something else entirely, and focusing on desire for gain and fear of loss is the most effective way to do that. Yep, yep. And uh, for those listeners that uh, are going to rush out and try this before they read the book, I just feel obligated to say, yes, you can talk about fear of loss, but don't just stop at scaring the hell out of your prospect. You yes. you have to reveal how the buyers yes. can avoid that loss with you. <laughs> Very Absolutely. important. Don't forget yeah. that part. That's a key part from the research. They found that sometimes fear of loss appeals don't work. And they said, well, why is that? When there's not a clear connection between how do I avoid what I'm fearing? So when someone tries to scare us and there's nothing we can do about it, right? There's, I don't know how to fix it. I ignore it. Our brains will instinctively ignore it, and it doesn't work. So you have to connect the dots, bring up fear of loss, and then show them how they can alleviate that fear so it's crystal, crystal clear. I always say when you explain some of this stuff, you need to do it like you're talking to a third grader. you got to make it very simple for people because our brains are – there's so much you know, going on with our brains. There's so much stimuli hitting us at any given time. We're all so busy. We're all frazzled. we got to clearly connect the dots so our brains – it's not a cognitive – high demanding thing for us to understand a sales pitch. It needs to be simple, but very powerful and based on this science. Yeah. And there's all those additional science where you talk about how, you know, the brain, human brain can only handle so much. It's like a bandwidth issue. Yes. Even for smart people. <laughs> and you, you've got to kind of, kind of break it down. Let me just ask one other, uh, very specific question that I know is of great interest, uh, to the listeners in chapter eight on closing. Mm. Uh, you demonstrate that the ways that uh, most people, salespeople, have been taught to close are antiquated and ineffective. Can you talk about what science is showing 
on what the most effective approach is. You started to touch on it at the beginning. I wanted you to wrap it up with, with uh, your findings there. Absolutely. And this is such an important piece because it really is how our brains make a buying decision. Our brains don't listen to a sales pitch and then at the end decide if we're going to buy or not. All of us can recognize that throughout a presentation, we're making certain commitments, we're agreeing or not agreeing with certain value propositions, certain ideas that are important. And so what we want to do is realize this, that small commitments lead to big commitments. And we have identified what the small commitments, strategic commitments are that you must get throughout the sales process and how to do that. And so when you look at closing in that way as incremental commitments, not one big commitment at the end, but a series of small strategic commitments that guide their potential customers on a progression of consent and naturally advance the sale and guide them into that larger decision of a positive buying decision. That's how our brains work. We have to make certain commitments or else we're not going to say yes to a uh, product or service at the end of the sales call or at the end of the buying cycle. And so we want to align how we sell with this by recognizing the importance of small strategic incremental commitments. And that's how we say you need to look at closing. Uh, if you look at it scientifically, the way we've historically taught closing as one big commitment that happens at the end of the sale is the opposite of how our brains make a buying decision. You literally couldn't construct a more ineffective model. And we all know this because many people hate closing. They talk about it. Buyers hate closing. Why? Because it conflicts with how our brains make a buying decision. But as you guide people through these small strategic commitments, all kind of powerful psychological things are occurring. And that final commitment at the end of the buying decision is easy. You know, most books on closing are divided into you know, these magical closing phrases you use and how to handle the objections that these phrases induce. Well, when you take this approach of strategic commitments throughout the sale, it changes everything. It allows you to go into that final commitment and close the sale, end the sale, in a very easy, non-confrontational, stress-free way. Why? Because you've aligned how you've sold with how the brain is wired to make a buying decision, which is better for you, and it certainly is better for your customers and allows them to be loyal and confident in their decision as a logical progression of consent. Mm -hmm. David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, the reason I wrote the book, and I have such passion for this, is that the one thing I would like people to take away is that there is a science to selling. And when you begin to base your sales behaviors on this science, it instantly improves your effectiveness and you're better able to meet your buyer's needs. And so that's the, really the one thing I want people to take away is that there's a literal science to it. And the more you can understand and apply it, the more effective and successful you'll be. Well said. What books have inspired your work and career? I'm really interested to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an avid reader. Uh, I read a lot of academic journals, but I'll refrain from uh, mentioning any of those. Some of, some books that I really enjoyed, you mentioned uh, Robert Cialdini's uh, work, I believe, a little while ago on his book, Influence. Yes, Early, and you er mentioned in the book, which, you know, it seems like most books that are on this show, they reference Dr. Cialdini's yeah. book, and he was on the show recently. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, boy. He's a fascinating man, and his ideas, his, it was a groundbreaking book. I think it was published in 1984. Yeah. And, um, boy, I mean, just groundbreaking ideas, and it really introduced the world to social psychology. He's a social psychologist, in fact, the most famous social, social psychologist on the planet. So his book was foundational just in putting some ideas in my mind and, and you know, 
you know, fanning the flame of reading some research beyond uh, the six primary heuristics that he talks about. Um, another book, another author that I was helpful and very instrumental early on for me was Daniel Goldman, who's also a social psychologist, written a number of very practical, sometimes business books, um, leveraging social psychology. One I really like called Primal Leadership, which is a great book on leadership, applying science to leadership. It was published, I think, probably about a decade ago, but it's a great book. And then one that's relatively recent, a couple years old, I think it was in 2011, was Richard Thaler's, uh, who's a behavioral economist, uh, his book Nudge, mm-hmm. which I think has sold almost a million copies. And it talks about how you can structure choices, leveraging this science to nudge people in one direction versus another, um, a landmark book. In fact, there's 136 countries now, including our own, the United States, that are leveraging behavioral science and behavioral economics and their policy making and, and conveying ideas to their uh, populace. And so, yeah, and I also read a lot of sales books, but I'd say those are some of the ones that kind of allow you to ease into the science and, and very practical and sometimes very important in groundbreaking ways. Mm. We'll make sure to uh, find links to all of those and put them in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Uh, well, now that you've written your book, are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, one that I just read that I really enjoyed uh, is by Ron Friedman, and we actually had him on uh, the podcast for my firm, um, but he has a great book called The Best Place to Work. The Best Place to Work. It was published by the same publisher I'm with. And um, what the book is, it talks about how to apply science in the workplace. How do you boost worker productivity? He leverages hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies. He was a social psychologist. And he says, how do I increase productivity? How do companies do that? How do they create better working environments, increase the longevity of their employees? How do they hire more effectively? And he leverages it all on science. And so it's uh, we have a very like-minded perspective. But it's a great book, The Best Place to Work by Ron Freeman. Very practical, easy to read, very well written. And I, I greatly enjoyed it. Mm, that sounds great. David, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Absolutely. Well, I'd recommend going to our website. That's Huffeld, H-O-F-F-E-L-D, group.com, huffeldgroup.com. There you can learn more about the book. We also have a lot of great resources, articles, blogs, white papers. We have a podcast, videos um, that you can look at and kind of learn more about how you can base your sales and marketing activities on hard scientific evidence. Mm. That's terrific. And I also want to get from you that one article you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about how over the, over time, people thought the salesmen mm. were going to be. I'm, I'm going to make sure I get that and put it in the um, show notes because I want to read it right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll send it over to you later today. Absolutely. Right. So the name of the book is The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. The author is David Hoffeld. David, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, it's been an absolute pleasure. And that closes the book on episode 97 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Hey, I just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and I'd like to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and send a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett, or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, at Marketing Book. And please join us next time as we talk with Professor Malcolm McDonald about his 46th book, The 
the second edition of Malcolm McDonald on Marketing Planning, Understanding Marketing Plans and Strategy. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.